Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this edition of What the Politics. I'm Victoria with Emily here in the digital studio. And today's topic is going to be about the January 6th insurrection. So before we get into that topic, because it's it's been quite a while since we've really covered anything since then here at WNCT, um, I'm going to ask our guest to introduce himself. Good morning. Uh, this is Jan Wolf. I'm a I'm a reporter covering legal issues for Reuters in DC. So my my first question is, is insurrection, is that the correct term when it comes to um, what happened on January 6th? I think that's a good question that has, uh, you know, been one that politicians and news organizations and the public has really grappled with. Um, I've, I've seen some news organizations feel comfortable calling it an insurrection. I do think that's a, um, somewhat loaded term because, you know, it, it brings to mind sedition, an attempt to overthrow the US government. And that's a crime under the legal code that hasn't actually been charged yet. Mm, um, okay. So, you know, when you're saying insurrection, you're, I think, suggesting that is the case. And, I, you know, I think reasonable people can disagree about that. I'll leave it at that. I, I, it's not for me to say, um, but, it's, you know, it was a deadly riot. Um, it was, you know, a, a pretty unprecedented attack. You know, I think, I think, you know, there's no real room for disagreement there. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And let's go ahead and talk about, you know, the players of this event, this situation, whether, you know, you want to call it an insurrection or something else, you know, the people that were involved, They've said Oath Keepers, Trump Loyalist, QAnon, Proud Boys. How would you really break down who these people were that were involved in this situation? The way FBI Director Chris Wray broke it down at a congressional hearing, this was a month or two ago, and which I think is accurate based on my reporting, is you had three general categories of people. Um, in the most extreme, you have uh, some of these far-right organizations you mentioned um, they've been alleged to have conspired to attempt to subvert the certification of, of Biden's victory. And so that's the, uh, at a high level, the, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and um, the Three Percenters. And so those are these sort of, um, you know, far right or, or um, militia groups that have been accused of, of the most serious charges here, conspiracy. Uh, conspiracy is a very, you know, a, a sort of a, a broad but serious crime on, under the federal code. Um, then you have people who aren't accused of conspiring ahead of time, but seem to have gotten swept up in the moment, right? And they had they engaged in, in attacks on police, uh, despite many of them in other settings, you know, claiming and admiration for law enforcement. They certainly didn't that day. I mean, they the footage really speaks for itself. It's awful. And then you have the people who uh, have uh, been charged or pleaded out to misdemeanors like unlawful picketing. These are people that entered the Capitol grounds. So, you know, that's a crime. You know, you, 
it's the people's house, but you go through security, right? You don't just let yourself in. And so, you know, but those are people who, uh, you know, didn't engage in any, they're not accused of engaging in any violence. It's, it's a misdemeanor charge of, of unlawful picketing or un unlawful parading. Rather. So when it comes to, to the, the federal crimes for the people who, who um, were rioting, um, what are some of the uh, repercussions? Like what would be the, the I guess, the, the sentencing? What, what are some of the, yeah, the, what happens when you, when you get accused of a crime and you're found guilty? What happens afterwards? Right. So now I'll start, you know, from the lesser offenses up. So the unlawful uh, parading charge, we have seen that, um, well, we don't have a lot of data, right? We have about 70 guilty pleas at my latest count, but 70? We only have two, yeah, 70, but so we have about 600 people charged, about 70 guilty pleas, and uh, we only have a few sentencings. I want to say three, but don't, don't hold me to that. But what we're seeing from these early sentencing is, is, is benchmarks um, that will be used later. And so if, if you pled out to the lesser charge of just unlawfully entering the building and you were cooperative with law enforcement and you accepted responsibility, you're not going to prison. I mean, that could change. You know, judges have a lot of discretion here and they're not bound by the decisions of their colleagues on, on the bench. But um, it doesn't look like that's going to result in any kind of jail time. And those people haven't been hit, held pending trial either. Um, if you're in the middle category, that's where we see judges' discretion really kicking in. You know, it's really up to the judge to, you know, evaluate there. But um, I think it, we're looking generally in a range of about six months to a year if you, you know, engaged in acts of violence or threats on that day, but not in the context of some coordinated conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and Three Percenters at the top of the pyramid, um, well, what we have to go off of is one member of the Oath Keepers pled guilty and the judge said at his, at his change of plea hearing that he's looking at between like 40 and 50 months. So even though he hasn't been sentenced yet, you know, he's looking at several years behind bars. That's the sentencing guidelines. The judge can go higher or lower, but that, that gives you a, a sense of what's going on. And many of those defendants have been held pretrial. So they're behind bars while they wait trial. Mm -hmm. And what is the, the highest offense that somebody is being charged with or accused of in this, this entire case load, I guess you could call it? Right. So that would be conspiracy. Like there's a general federal statute against conspiring with another person to commit any other offense on, under the federal criminal code. And that's a recognition of the fact that conspiracies are just inherently more dangerous when two people, two or more people get there to plan uh, and take a, an overt act furtherance of that plan. You know, that, that makes everything much more serious. And so our criminal code reflects that. So it's this general conspiracy charge conspiring to uh, block the certification of the vote. What we haven't seen yet, despite you know much speculation about this, is sedition. There's a federal statute against attempting to overthrow the government that has not been charged. Um, mm -hmm. And there was some thought that we might see a murder charge, right? Because Officer Brian Sicknick, a member of the of the Capitol Police, uh, he died soon after you know the deadly attack. Um, this 
actually came to a surprise to some people, but his autopsy came back saying he died of natural causes. I think that made a lot of people say, I don't quite understand. He died of a stroke the next day. You're telling me that's unrelated uh, you know, to what happened at the Capitol. Um, but that's what the autopsy said. Uh, I have to think that the fact that you know, he was being attacked you know, viciously for hours the day before had something to do with him dying of a stroke the next day. But the long and short of it is, as I understand it, that, that complicates a, a murder case. It essentially takes any kind of murder theory off the table, including felony murder, which is a crime of like, let's say a murder happens when you're robbing a bank or something like that. You can be charged with, with murder under federal, the felony murder statute. So there was some thought we might see that. Um, it's sort of like saying a murder happened because you did another very serious crime. And you know, because of that autopsy, I don't think we're going to see that happen. I think it would have happened by now if it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so um, this might sound kind of like a, not, not a dumb question, but I'm just trying to kind of keep everything in check. So people um, who are being charged, they're, they're kind of being accused of um, trying to overthrow or um, thwart like the voting, the, the vote counts or something like that. It's not necessarily having to do with um, trying to, to do a coup, like a coup d'etat. Yeah, the wording in these in the conspiracy cases is uh, a, a conspiring to uh, block the certification of, of, of Congress's work. It's a, so it's not conspiracy to overthrow the government. Okay. It's conspiracy to block the functionings of Congress. Okay. Yeah. So that's something that I wasn't really like, uh, I thought it was like sedition, insurrection, like conspiracy to like overthrow, over, overthrow, uh, uh, Congress. Um, so one of the people, one of the main characters that was involved that blew up everyone's social media timelines was Q Anon Shaman. Um, what what's going on? First of all, I, I can't even I don't know his name, like his actual name. But um, what what's going on with him? Where is where is he in in uh, in this caseload and and being charged? Like what is he being charged with? Where is he? And and um, yeah, just kind of catch us up on on what happened to him. <laughs> His his case got a lot, lot of attention. I mean, it obviously began with the uh, costume, and then he also, you know, made some requests and claims that I think got a lot of attention. He said he only wanted to eat organic food, and of course that, you know, got I think that that drew some some laughs. He uh, you know he did a sixty minutes interview. His mom was on sixty minutes. Uh, and so that's Jacob Chansley. I, I guess he was born Jacob Angeli. He goes by Jacob Chansley. Everyone knows him as the QAnon shaman, sort of confusing. Um, but, you know, he has said that uh, he's a shaman. Um, I don't know much about shamanism, to be honest, but that's why he said he had to eat organic food. Uh, he would go to QAnon events around the country for a long time. You know, he has, he one point said that he thought he should get a pardon from Donald Trump. He just has a history of sort of making outlandish statements. And I think that's why he's gotten a lot of attention. Um, he, according to his lawyer, you know, ha- has mental health problems. And his lawyer did ask for, you know, a mental health evaluation, a comp- competency exam to see if he really is capable of standing trial and, you know, understanding the charges against him, that sort of thing. In the end, he recently accepted a plea deal and he's looking at a sentence, I want to say it's about 40 months, I need to check that, but it, you know, it, it's in that range of like a few years under the sentencing guidelines. Um, and so, you know, 
his lawyers tried to portray him as more in like that middle category of, or even in lesser, the real lesser category of people who just kind of like breached the Capitol, but they didn't, they weren't violent at all. And the government has had painted a different picture of him. You know, he's holding like this, this uh, projectile. Uh, I mean, that's too loaded. The government calls it a spear. His lawyer says it's like a, a harmless flagpole. He, um, you know, by going to these QAnon events, prosecutors say that suggests, you know, violent tendencies because ultimately QAnon is, you know, this absurd conspiracy theory that, you know, you know, Democrats are like this, you know, you know, sinister, you know, group that's, you know, harming children. And so, you know, prosecutors tried to make him look like a threat and a violent man. And he did leave a, a, a note. You know, you may have seen the footage of him breaching the, the Senate chamber, and that's when he left a note for Pence. Um, and and, and say, it was sort of a cryptic message like, you know, we're coming for you. That's not exactly what he said. I don't want to misquote it, but something in that realm. And so I think there's, you know, disagreement really between prosecutors and his defense lawyer about whether this is like a violent guy or, you know, this is just like sort of a harmless, like, you know, guy who likes to dress up. Definitely. And and I I, thought, I think I saw recently that he was actually trying to like denounce QAnon out of his name and kind of revert back to his his birth name or given name or chosen name, I guess. Um, so in my mind, I'm thinking, is that because of the legal proceedings going on and it has to do with some sort of liability and he's trying to walk away from that name? Or is it just he's realized, you know, maybe like, hey, I messed up or maybe this isn't you know, maybe this isn't the line of, of work for me, you know, kind of thing. I think what you're grappling with is exactly what the judge was grappling with, because, uh, you know, on multiple occasions, Chansley sought release from jail. And in that calculus, you know, when somebody hasn't actually been, you know, charged, you have to decide, are they a danger to the community? And so what you look to is whether they've actually tried to make amends and have been apologetic and um, you know, long story short, I think the judge really struggled with this. It's like, are you saying what you need to say now because you think it'll help you or are you actually contrite? And I do think it's fair to say, I mean, this is what the judge said, you know, the Chansley has been a bit all over the place in terms of his acceptance of responsibility. You know, is he, uh, you know, is he really contrite or does he plan to monetize his fame as a, Q, as a QAnon mascot? I mean, that's what the judge called him. Uh, so the most recent decision in that case was having pled out, Chansley wanted to be released while he awaited his um, sentencing hearing. And the judge said, no, because I'm not convinced that you, the judge said, I think you're still a danger to the community, basically. So the judge didn't seem to think that, you know, he's, he's being fully contrite here. And so when it comes to um, uh, arresting people and, and um, my question is, why did it take so long to, to arrest a lot of the people involved or, or try to find out who exactly the characters were involved? I mean, I remember weeks after after January 6th, March, April, May, seeing people, oh, so-and-so was arrested, so-and-so was arrested. Why did it take so long? Yeah, so, you know, that's something a lot of people have wondered about, and I think it's been a subject of congressional hearings. The intelligence agencies have basically said, and the police have said that, you know, they were overwhelmed and the footage really speaks for itself. And, you know, I don't think they've gone as far as calling it an intelligence failure, but I don't think there's any dispute that um, law enforcement was caught off guard and they never want that to happen again. And ultimately, uh, 
you know, I think when you're overwhelmed and, and trying to protect members of Congress, your, you know, your focus shifts from executing arrests to just trying to, you know, counter violence. And so there were very few arrests that day. And, um, you know, that led to a very unusual sort of uh, online manhunt in a sense. And it, it's been interesting to see the crowdsourcing of it. If you read these affidavits from FBI agents, this was crowdsourced uh, a lot. Uh, a guy named Ryan Riley, a reporter at the Huffington Post, is actually writing a book about this, about the, you know, the manhunt. Um, that's all really been done through tips, and um, some a lot of people were turned in by friends and family. You know, we've seen families and friendships torn apart here, but you know that, that that's a common dynamic where family members and friends said, you know, we're turning you in. You know, we we see that that's you. You know, we're, we see the footage here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we've seen even sort of like high school acquaintances, Facebook friends, you know, a lot of people, I think, a lot of people who participated boasted on social media afterward. And so other people took screenshots of that before it could be deleted, you know, before there could be a change of heart, and they sent it to the FBI tip line. There were some bad tips too, but, uh, you know, it's been interesting to see how many of these tips did lead to arrests. Um, there were even women in, in the D.C. area who, in the immediate aftermath, went on uh, dating apps like, like Bumble, especially, and they set their filters to conservative or very conservative or whatever, and they, they started matching with guys who were visiting, and they got some of them to confess to participating in, you know, in, in the attack, and they took screenshots of that and sent it to the FBI. So <laughs> it's been pretty rem remarkable. Uh, I haven't seen any, anything quite like it in, in in law enforcement history. For sure. And I mean, with with people, you know, like you said, a lot of these situations, a lot of these arrests were made because family members, friends on social media and things like that were, were sending these tips into the FBI. So I know with a lot of crimes, you know, there's statute of limitations with how long something can be pressed. So is there a statute of limitations with these types of crimes or these types of situations? And how long is that? Yeah. Um... There is a statute of limitations for like pretty much for, for all criminal offenses, uh, really for the most part, because we don't want evidence to get stale. And, you know, at a, at a certain point, it, that starts to be unfair to the defendant. Um, you know, but generally, the statute of limitations for like most criminal offenses is in like, a, you know, the two year range. So there's still, you know, a lot of runway here for prosecutors to, uh, to, to bring charges. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, the January 6th congressional panel. So w explain to people what that like what a congressional panel is and um, if there's any sort of uh, disagreements or, or any sort of I don't want to say controversy because that's such a loaded term. But if there's any sort of heated arguments happening within that panel. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think the formation of the uh, committee commission has been really controversial because um, there's one procedure that allows for, you know, a, a bipartisan investigation by outside experts. And that's what we had after 9-11. Uh, you know, we had the 9-11 Commission. These were experts from both little parties who wrote a very impressive, like, document that, you know, is now taught in school, like an explanation of what happened. And so I think a lot of people wanted to see that. But... Um, you know, long story short, there was a lot of Republican opposition and um, they were, you know, 
and some of which was grounded in, in opposition to how many Democrats Speaker Pelosi wanted to put on that for that form of a commission. So it didn't happen. So what we have now is what's called a select committee. And um, it, it's actual members of the, of the US House of Representatives who are on the select committee. And um, at one point, Kevin McCarthy put forth five recommendations for Republicans. And Speaker Nancy Pelosi shot down two of them, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks, because she just didn't think, and she, the way she put it, they, they weren't serious about getting to the bottom of what happened. And they, they would only throw wrenches in the investigation at, at every turn. Um, and that uh, Jim Jordan is actually a material witness because he spoke to Trump that day. Or that, that's the Democrat view. So uh, once Pelosi rejected those two picks, McCarthy then pulled all five of them, even the three that Pelosi said were fine. So then Pelosi picked two anti-Trump Republicans, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney to be on the commission, the committee rather, because she wanted it to be bipartisan. Uh, so it's mostly Democrats and then it has Cheney and, and Kinzinger. And these are, you know, members of the house. They're not like outsiders, but they do have an investigative staff uh, and they do have subpoena power. So, you know, they will get to the bottom of some of what happened, whether they will get to the bottom of it as well as like a, a 9-11 side commit, commission. I think there's skepticism of that, but, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. I mean, maybe they'll do a great job. Maybe they won't. We just don't know. Sure. And I want to get right into former President Donald Trump and kind of, you know, his role or people's idea of his role in this situation, as well as, you know, where he is now and where he might be in the future. You know, a lot of people really don't want him to be able to run for office at all ever again. They want him completely barred from that. Um, but there has been speculation that, you know, he might run in 2024. Or he might try for another position in 2024. So what are your thoughts or, or where is Donald Trump now and, and kind of how did he get to the position he's in right now? Yeah, so. I mean, where, where to begin, right? I mean, so in recent weeks, there's been a lot more talk of him running among people close to him. And he, his hints have become less subtle. So, I mean, we'll wait and see. But I mean, he said, he's essentially saying he's going to run again. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. There, there's an argument that, you know, he's saying that because it helps with GOP fundraising and it helps keep him in the spotlight and that there's no harm in and, and flirting with the idea of running, but we'll see. He um, he he is free to run for office again. Uh, impeachment was the mechanism to stop him to disqualify him from running again. That that you know, if you're convicted in you know in a Senate impeachment trial, the Senate can bar you from running again. They opted not to do that, so uh, there's that. And um, you know, he has not been criminally charged. Uh, in connection with January 6th. In terms of his criminal liability, you know, the likelihood of, of him facing criminal charges, here's where we're, we're at. So the New York, the New York, uh, the New York sorry, the Manhattan District Attorney, who's a state prosecutor, has a tax fraud case against the Trump Organization. Trump is not a defendant in that case. It could happen though. So that has nothing to do with January 6th and everything to do with his habits as a businessman before he became president. If he's charged, he can still run for office, but I think that would complicate things. You know, the GOP would have to ask themselves if they're okay with that. And uh, 
state prosecutors in Fulton County in Georgia are investigating whether he tampered with that state's election. We, you might recall like there was um, audio of him saying to the Secretary of State in Georgia, you know, uh, this election was corrupt, I need you to find me votes. So was that him engaging in protected First Amendment speech or was that him pressuring an election official and, and violating the criminal code? So that, there's that. And then, you know, the uh, DC Attorney General has talked about investigating whether he engaged in criminal incitement but the DC Attorney General generally doesn't bring criminal cases. So all that to say, you know, I don't expect Donald Trump to be charged in connection with January 6th based on what I have seen at this point. The First Amendment provides really strong protection to all of us, including the president. Um, and one thing about Donald Trump is that he speaks in sort of vague ways. So for instance, like before January 6th, his tweet said, January 6th, be there, it's going to be wild. Well, what, what does that mean? You know, it's open to interpretation. The Oath Keepers, according to these indictments, saw it as a call to, call to violence. Other people, you know, might see it differently, and he can plausibly say, you know, I didn't mean to incite, you know, an insurrection. And that's what he said. That was his defense in the impeachment context. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I don't expect him to be charged. I don't expect anyone really in his inner, inner circle, from Donald Trump Jr. to Roger Stone, to, uh, to others, to, to, to Rudy Giuliani, to be charged just based on what's been reported so far. Of course, that could change. We don't know all the facts, but you know, I, I think some caution is in order there. Yeah, so I have one more question for you. Emily, do you-, do you That's have, all my questions. <laughs> that those are all your questions? Yeah. All right, so um, my question is kind of, it's gonna go away from the January 6th topic. You gave us one sentence about who you are, like your background. So um, kind of just going into to legal reporting and, and what you do, how, how do you report on a case this big? Like, where do you get, who are your sources? How do you, how do you, how do you what are start? your assignments? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you have someone tell you how to, how to, uh, report, um, like a, like a word count, a deadline? Just tell us how you, how you're reporting this. Well, you know, there are some reporters who are on this beat full time. Um, and I suggest following them on, on Twitter, reading their work. Uh, Zoe Tillman of Buzzfeed, I think really sets the gold standard. Ryan Riley of Huffington Post has also done an amazing job. And, um, you know, they are every day dialing into multiple court hearings because, you know, we're dealing with more than 600 defendants. And, you know, so every day there's something going on. And, you know, members of the public can listen too if they want because of the pandemic, the judges in DC have opened up an audio phone line. You can't see exactly what's happening, but you can hear the audio. And so what I do is I, I cover these hearings on a, on a near daily basis. I'm writing about other things too. Um, I can't quite make it a full-time beat, but you know, it's, let's say it's uh, about half my workload right now is just writing about these cases as they wind their way through the, uh, the court system. I went to law school before I became a journalist. So I've always been, been drawn to legal issues and, and writing about the law. And, um, you know, in the Trump presidency and in the final weeks of Trump's presidency, there's been no shortage of, uh, of legal issues to, uh, to cover. So I've been pretty busy. 
Definitely. Well, one more question, I guess, a fun question just to kind of wrap it up. Why not? Um, we're heading into fall. It's starting to get chilly out. Are you one of those people that is like all about <laughs> the pumpkin spice, all of the fall drinks and all that sort of stuff? Or are you just like, meh, okay. <laughs> I, uh, the pumpkin spice latte, no, but the, these like pumpkin cream cold brews that they have at oh, Dunkin' yeah, and right? Starbucks. Yeah. With the new cold foam. I don't know if you had that yet, but yeah. I mean, I'm the same. I'll have that in July. So good. I don't. There you go. See, I'm the exact same way. Some people are like, absolutely not. Keep that away from me until like, you know, November. But I'm all about it. So. <laughs> yeah, it's in the 80s every day in DC. So it does seem a bit, a bit odd to, uh, to, to have it. But I don't judge personally. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much for for taking the time out of your day to to talk with us about such an important topic and such a huge topic, you know, in our country. So thank you so much. And guys, thank you for watching this edition of um, what the politics you guys who those who are listening we do have a video component of course on our website you can find us on Spotify Apple podcast or wherever else you listen or watch your podcast so thank you guys so much and we'll see you next episode